saving money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Saving money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com. For all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Throughout the 16th and 17th centuries, there were few things that were more feared than witches. Although we know today that a great many people were accused of being witches for some pretty sketchy reasons, for the average European the fear of witches lurking in the shadows was something that was very, very real. In 1486, German demon hunters Heinrich Kramer and Jakob Sprenger wrote the Malleus Maleficarum, or the Hammer of Witches, a how-to guide about the ways people could identify and stamp out witches. It's estimated that throughout the late Middle Ages, as many as 200,000 to half a million men, women, and children were executed for witchcraft. That's not even including the countless others who were locked away in prison for allegedly consorting with the devil. In 1566, about 30 boys and girls at a Catholic orphanage school in Amsterdam, Holland, began exhibiting strange fits and convulsions. Some of the children began to experience violent spasms of their arms and legs. Sometimes these fits would last for as long as an hour or more. Then, just as suddenly as one of these fits came on, it would abruptly end, and the child would begin acting normal again as if nothing had happened. Then, some of the children began to exhibit some other, even stranger behavior. A few would suddenly fall into a trance-like state, while still others would begin behaving like cats. They would growl and hiss and sometimes even crawl around on all fours. Then things took an even darker turn when several of these children began sprinting towards nearby rivers and ponds as if they planned to drown themselves. But then, just before they would dive into the water, they would abruptly stop right at the water's edge, crying out that God would not permit them to go any farther. In addition to the fear of witches that was so prevalent in the Middle Ages, there was also a widespread belief that cats were familiars of the devil. So naturally, when so many children began behaving like cats, this caused a number of adults to believe that the devil had possessed them. This wasn't the only time back then when people began to worry that the devil had invaded a school either. In 1639, a witchcraft scare broke out in a girls' school in Lille, France, that nearly got every student burned at the stake. The school's ultra-pious headmistress was a woman named Antoinette Bourgnon, Throughout Antoinette's life, she saw herself as an instrument of God, and she came to believe it was her duty to spread the gospel to others. One day, she walked into a classroom and shocked the students when she announced that she could see tiny black angels flitting around their heads. She warned them that these tiny imps were beings sent by the devil himself, and that they were trying to find a way inside the children. Before long, Satan was all any of the girls could talk about. One of the girls became so terrified that she fled the school in terror. Although after she was brought back, she claimed that she had not actually run away, but rather, the devil had carried her away. 
Then the girl made things even worse for everyone when she confessed to being a witch, and that she had been one since she was seven years old. Soon after news spread about the girl's confession, around 50 other children also fell under suspicion of being in league with the devil. Some of the girls began having fits similar to those seen in the children from the Catholic orphanage in Holland. Others began confessing that they too were witches, telling everyone that their souls were tainted and needed to be cleansed. As the days wore on, the children began confessing to even more outlandish stories. Some of them claimed that they could fly on broomsticks. Others said they could pass through keyholes. Still others began claiming that they attended black masses and liked to feast on the flesh of babies. As a result, a formal investigation began. Although some of Lil's clergy and prominent citizens remained skeptical, plenty of other locals believed what the girls were saying and began calling for all 50 schoolgirls to be burned at the stake. But cooler heads prevailed when some of the more skeptical clergy insisted that the investigation be completed before doing anything rash. This would lead them to discover that all this talk of witchcraft and Satan originated with the school's headmistress, Madame Bourgnon, who had drilled these ideas into her students' impressionable young heads. Madame Bourgnon was eventually forced to leave town and from there went on to make several attempts throughout her life to start her own religious community. Now, it's easy for us to look back through history and think that incidents like these are a thing of the past, brought on by religious hysteria. We like to think of ourselves as a more enlightened people today, and not prone to superstition. But sometimes history has a terrifying way of repeating itself. Back in 1979, a riot broke out at a Miami military school, injuring several students and causing widespread damage. According to many witnesses who were there that day, the riot started because the devil made them do it. I'm Nate Hale, and if you listen to this podcast backwards, it won't make a lick of sense. And this is The Conspirators. There's a particular religion called Santeria that's estimated to be practiced by up to 80% of Cuba's population. Santeria can be traced to the Lakumi religion, which was practiced by the Yoruba tribes in what is today modern Nigeria and Benin. As enslaved people from Africa were taken to Cuba in the 17th century, they brought with them many of their religious practices. Officially, slaves were banned from practicing their own religion, so they began disguising their gods which were called Orishas, as Catholic saints. And from there, they simply continued praying to them as they always had. As a result, Santeria was born. Although Santeria was practiced in secret for centuries following the Cuban Revolution, the religion became more mainstream and quickly gained popularity throughout the country. Even Fidel Castro was rumored to be a believer. A lot of these rituals and practices made their way to America as Cuban exiles began hitting the shores of Miami throughout the 1960s. Throughout Little Havana, you could find shops selling special candles and other items to be used in Santeria rituals. 
If you took a stroll through the neighborhood, it wouldn't be uncommon to come across children playing with chicken heads and cigar stubs and praying to the Santeria gods. It's easy to see how many Christians would come to think of Santeria as black magic. But keep in mind, practitioners of Santeria don't think of it as black or white magic. It's simply the religion with its own unique rituals and practices. During the 1970s, the fear of the devil saw a major resurgence throughout the United States, and Santeria would get swept up into this religious fervor as part of the problem. Films like The Exorcist and The Omen terrified audiences. It helped develop an atmosphere where people believed demonic forces were at work, attempting to influence young people. Miami in particular saw a major outbreak in this satanic panic that was spreading throughout the United States. During the 1980s, Miami became ground zero for many of the satanic sex abuse cases that were widely reported during the satanic panic era. According to the Sarasota Tribune, in 1974, Miami's Jackson Memorial Hospital treated an estimated 700 patients a month who claimed to be possessed by demons. That same year, local newspapers reported that a nine-year-old girl stood up in church and announced that, I am Satan, in a deep, gravelly voice that wasn't her own. Then on October 25, 1979, just a few days before Halloween, a bizarre series of calls were made to the Miami Police Department. That was when several frantic students and teachers began phoning in to report that a riot had broken out at a private military school in Little Havana, called the Miami Aerospace Academy. But this was no ordinary riot. Witnesses who were there that day told police and reporters that some of their fellow students were possessed by evil spirits, and that the devil himself had caused them to tear the school apart. One student was knocked unconscious. Several others were injured with cuts and bruises. One student was sent hurtling out a second-story window. The police and firefighters who arrived on the scene found students fleeing terrified from the school. When television reporters arrived on the scene, several students began frantically describing how a number of their classmates were possessed by demons after dabbling in black magic. The school's headmaster, 48-year-old Evaristo Marina, attempted to dispel any rumors about demonic possession. But the press wasn't having it. This was too juicy of a story. By the following day, articles ran in both the Associated Press and the New York Times about how this riot was sparked by fear of the devil himself. To understand how the riot broke out, we should first talk about the school and its controversial headmaster. Evaristo Marina was born in Cuba in 1930. He studied law at the University of Havana, where, according to other students who knew him, he clashed with one fellow student in particular named Fidel Castro. Another student named George Navarini later described how Evaristo Marina and the young Fidel Castro would often get into long arguments about Marxism and Cuba's future. When Marina was still in his early 20s, he became a close confidant of Cuba's then-strongman president, Fulgencio Batista, who appointed Marina to be the general director of public order. This position put the young man in charge of Cuba's nightclubs, casinos, and police. But the job didn't last long. During the 1950s, Fidel Castro successfully managed to overthrow the Batista government, after which Castro drove the old guard out of power and put a price on Marina's head. In 1959, Marina fled to the United States. After reaching U.S. shores, Marina immediately began thinking up ways to regain his former glory. But Marina quickly learned that his former position in the Cuban government didn't matter much to anyone in the U.S., he ended up being forced to work as a busboy and a waiter at the posh Miami Biltmore Hotel. 
The 25-year-old Cuban exile had big dreams of one day becoming Miami's mayor. But at the time, the highest position of power he was able to achieve was to become the head soccer coach at the Florida Air Academy in Melbourne. This turned out to be fortuitous because the school was associated with the Army's Junior Reserve Officers Training Corps, which gave Marina the idea that perhaps there was a market in Miami for a new military training school. He imagined a school that would blend his Cuban discipline with all the pomp and circumstance of the American military. But in order to create such a place of learning, Marina knew he needed the seed money to get it going. He started his own beverage company called Iron Beer Soft Drinks, which was based on a popular Cuban soda with the same name. He also decided early on that in order to give his academy an air of legitimacy, he needed a military rank of his own. So Marina joined the Civil Air Patrol, an auxiliary of the United States Air Force, where he rose to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. By the time Marina finally opened the doors to his military academy, he had granted himself the rank of El General, and over time he would periodically award himself more and more stars. In 1959, Marina married a woman in Miami, and a few years later they had a son they named Evaristo Jr. In 1968, Marina sold the beverage company and he used the profits to open his school. Florida was home to Cape Canaveral, and astronauts and rocket ships were still wildly popular at the time. So Marina decided to name his school the Miami Aerospace Academy. He began wearing a custom version of his old Civil Air Patrol uniform, one with fancier epaulets, and a general's hat similar to the one worn by Cuba's former President Batista. Marina called the students cadets and he granted the teachers with the ranks of colonels and majors. Cadets were required to wear a blue uniform similar to Air Force uniforms. Sometimes he'd make students dress up in camouflage fatigues and helmets and have them march in formation. The academy took in students from kindergarten to 12th grade. Boys and girls were split up and educated in separate classes. Marina believed strongly in machismo. Boys were taught things that Marina thought of as manly, subjects like military science, fencing, and judo. While girls were taught things like home economics. Boys were required to get buzz cuts at the school's barbershop, although Marina made allowances for the girls since he thought they looked good with long hair. Early on, enrollment was slow and Marina found it difficult to draw in new students. Although he eventually got the idea that he could create an impression that his aerospace academy was a place that could straighten out wayward youths. He began pulling students straight from juvenile detention and even sometimes gave them fake identities to hide their crimes from their parents. Over time, the academy's reputation grew throughout Miami and the enrollment numbers swelled. Some parents would pay as much as $6,000 a year to send their kids to the school. After that, Marina made enough money to purchase a 1.3-acre property across from Miami High School for just under $1 million. This new campus included a two-story classroom building, additional offices, and an Olympic-sized swimming pool. He even somehow managed to get his hands on a decommissioned U.S. Air Force F-84 fighter jet. In 1972, Marina infuriated local residents when he had the plane delivered to the school during rush hour, scratching several parked cars and destroying a number of palm trees along the way. He then had the jet hoisted up over the school's entrance, where it stood as an enticement for new students. Marina also hired a film crew to shoot a commercial advertising the academy that played in movie theaters across the southern United States. By 1971, the school had more than a thousand students with a three-to-one ratio of boys to girls. 
At the same time, Marina continued to try to grow his power and influence over the city. He directed a huge chunk of the school's profits into an unsuccessful run for the Miami City Commission in 1972. This forced the school to file for bankruptcy the following year, although the academy would continue to operate for more than a decade longer. Several scandals plagued the school during the two decades it remained open. One early scandal broke out during the mid-1970s when a local newspaper revealed that the school's star quarterback, who suspiciously never removed his helmet, was actually a disgraced former star athlete from Miami High brought in as a ringer. Another controversy that would be revealed over time was that most of the school's teachers didn't actually have accreditation to teach in the state of Florida. This was a loophole the school was able to get around in state law since it was a private for-profit academy. One other thing that no one knew was that the teacher known only as Miss Williams was actually Marina's wife. This would only be revealed after she abruptly left both the school and her husband. Marina said his wife moved to New York, leaving their son in his care. Pretty soon, Marina began bringing an endless string of girlfriends with him to hang out at the school. Marina soon gained a reputation as the guy most likely to hit on his students' most attractive moms. There were other rumors about Evaristo Marina as well. Some rumors began to spread that Marina was a Santero, a high priest of Santeria. Along with his military-style uniform, Marina would sometimes dress in all white, the traditional garb of a Santero. This wouldn't be entirely out of the ordinary either. The practice of Santeria was prevalent throughout Little Havana. And as you branch further out throughout Miami, you could also find pockets of Haitians practicing voodoo and Bahamanian exiles practicing Obeya. In the eyes of many fundamentalist Christians, this was all just a cover for the worship of Satan. Inside the Miami Aerospace Academy, there developed a strange openness about dabbling in ritual magic. A biology teacher named Major Kunan began reading tarot cards in class. Other students began playing with Ouija boards to contact the spirits. Some kids began playing a game known as Bloody Mary, where you would light a candle in a darkened bathroom while chanting Bloody Mary's name and staring into a mirror. Supposedly, if he did the ritual correctly, Bloody Mary's ghost would appear behind you. Marina once told a reporter that, quote, You bring in a teacher certified from the state of Florida, and he might be a homosexual. There were a few things Marina hated more than homosexuals. He flatly stated his school had three goals, to stamp out communism, drugs, and homosexuality. Marina himself spread a rumor that he'd installed microphones in the school's bathrooms. He also ordered regular inspections to make sure his students weren't either secretly gay or communist. Throughout the 1970s, Marina continued his quest to gain political power in Miami. He spent loads of cash on yet another failed run for public office again in 1976. It wouldn't be the last time either. Meanwhile, the occult rituals continued to amp up at Marina's school. Some students reported finding offerings to the Santeria gods around campus. This included things like blackened pennies to ward off evil, and dead chickens with red silk ribbons knotted three times around their necks. Some kids began to openly worry that the school itself may be cursed. Literal cracks began to form in the academy's walls, although this was more likely due to shoddy construction work than demonic forces. One story began to spread that the school's fighter jet was haunted by the spirit of the pilot that burned alive inside it while fighting in Korea. Of course this wasn't true, but it was exactly the sort of story that would have spread like wildfire throughout the academy. Even if the school wasn't cursed by evil spirits, 
Many of the students remained constantly on edge for all sorts of other reasons. Remember that the school got its start taking in troubled kids straight out of juvenile detention. This meant that bullying happened frequently around campus, and many students were afraid to walk the halls. To combat these problems, teachers were given more freedom to mete out punishment. One thing Marina did was to hire a new disciplinary instructor. Major McKentley was a former football coach who was issued a cricket bat named Big Ben with orders to use it as he saw fit. The 38-inch wooden paddle had holes drilled into it that made it whistle when it was swung, and Big Ben got used a lot. Former students who wrote on the school's Facebook page described McKinley as being billed like an NFL player. They learned to dread the approaching sound of the man's overstuffed keyring jangling as he came down the halls. According to some students, McKinley once hit a child so hard with the paddle, it broke in half. Some students would go on to describe all the dabbling with the occult they did as an escape from the constant fear they felt of the punishment they received at the school. Newspaper articles would later tell stories about students performing seances and using Ouija boards in the school's bathrooms. The 1979 yearbook actually had a 12-pointed star with zodiac symbols on the front cover. Students were always trying to guess which teachers were Santeros. One teacher even gained the nickname the Exorcist, because of how creepy she was. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. By October 1979, Major McKentley left the school and was replaced as the school's disciplinary officer by a 19-year-old former student named Joseph Wolfe. Unlike McKentley, Wolfe refused to use the paddle on students, having found himself on the receiving end of it back when he attended the academy. Originally, Wolf had left Miami to continue his schooling in Columbia. But after he returned, Marina made him an offer he couldn't refuse. $1,200 a month to maintain order in the school. The 19-year-old gladly accepted and soon treated himself to a brand new Corvette. Wolf was present on the Thursday afternoon before Halloween when the riot broke out, and it's from him where we get a lot of the spookier parts of the tale. At 12.15 p.m., biology teacher Patricia Murphy was escorting her 10th graders to their next class when she heard a commotion coming from the girls' bathroom. There was a group of students blocking the doorway. Murphy shoved her way through the crowd and found a 13-year-old girl inside sobbing. The girl had broken down crying a few minutes earlier then ran out of the classroom. Several of her friends followed after her to see what was wrong. Keep in mind one thing you'll learn when researching this story is how many different accounts you'll read of exactly how things went down that afternoon. But one thing everyone seems to agree on is everything went from bad to worse within a very short time. At the time when the girl was having a breakdown inside the lavatory, the hallways were packed with students coming back from lunch. Something about the girl sobbing seemed to infect the crowd. Soon other students began crying uncontrollably as well. Then Patricia Murphy heard a scream coming from somewhere else down the hall. Several students began arguing and shoving each other. This quickly escalated into students battering the doors and attempting to damage the school itself. Back inside one of the second floor classrooms, a fight broke out between two teenage boys. 
Joseph Wolf was outside the building ordering a group of students to march when he looked up and saw one of those two teenage boys come crashing out a second-story window. The boy flew through the air and landed with a thud on the roof of a school bus. For one horrifying instant, Wolf was certain the boy must have either been killed or at least horribly injured. But then suddenly the boy rose to his feet and hopped out off the bus. Wolf was stunned. He tried grabbing the boy, but according to Wolf, the kid suddenly pivoted his head around like the girl in The Exorcist. Wolf said the boy's eyes were red and bloodshot and showed no pupils. He growled at him like a rabid dog, then shrieked at him to let him go. Wolf couldn't believe what was happening. He was in terrific physical shape and should have been much stronger than the boy. But the younger boy seemed to have the strength of ten men. He easily broke free of Wolf's grasp and then bolted away. From inside the school, Wolf could hear the cadets screaming. Wolf didn't know what to do. This wasn't the job he'd signed up for. Many students began rushing out of the building. He briefly chased after one little girl who was running up the street toward Miami High, but he couldn't catch her. He then turned and ran inside the building and darted up the stairs to the classroom where the student had gone flying out the window. He was surprised to find two students standing inside near a Ouija board. Elsewhere inside the school, panic spread like wildfire. Students were smashing windows and tearing doors off their hinges. Fist fights were going on everywhere. A few children were knocked unconscious. Others suffered cuts from broken glass. The Miami Police and Fire Department soon arrived on the scene. None of the officers or other firemen could believe what was happening. Students were breaking windows to escape. Some kids came running up to the police officers telling them that evil spirits were possessing their classmates. A few girls came rushing out of the building screaming about Bloody Mary. The following day, a news report would appear in the New York Times claiming the riot broke out after Murphy, the biology teacher, performed a hypnosis demonstration in class, although Murphy denied this ever happened. Even some of the school's faculty believed supernatural forces caused the riot. One of the school's English teachers, Yolanda Viciedo, quit on the spot. She later told reporters she had heard some of the girls screaming that an evil spirit had come out of the Ouija board they'd been using. Other witnesses began coming forward talking about witches inside the school and about how they had unleashed demons. Evaristo Marina didn't do himself any favors as he tried to dispel any stories about evil spirits and witches. His problem was he didn't display any concern about the students, but instead he told reporters that somebody must have put the kids up to it in order to wreck his chances in the upcoming election. By 3 o'clock, the riot had calmed down, but according to Joseph Wolfe, that wasn't the end of the supernatural events that day. Wolfe agreed to drive the boy and girl he discovered standing next to the Ouija board back home in his Corvette. During the ride home, Wolfe questioned the couple about what was going on. At first, they told him they had just been observing some students playing with the Ouija board in the upstairs classroom. When Wolfe pulled up to the girl's house, the terrified teens begged him to stay with them until the girl's mother returned home from work. They all sat around chatting for a few hours. Then at about 8 o'clock, more strange things began to occur. That was when the lights suddenly went out and the house went completely dark. Wolf said he heard a door slam. Then suddenly the TV began to flicker on and off despite there being no power. It was at that time when the teenagers made a chilling confession. The boy admitted that it was actually he and his girlfriend who had been using the Ouija board. And now they were worried they might have summoned something evil. Wolf was feeling freaked out. He excused himself, then he fumbled his way in the dark to the front door. He managed to unlock it, then made a run for his car. Only when he tried to start the Corvette, he had another classic moment straight out of a horror movie. That was because at first, 
the car wouldn't start. Then, when he finally did get the engine going, he tore out of there fast. Wolf quit his job as the Miami Aerospace Academy's discipline officer that same night. He later enrolled in the Miami Police Academy and would go on to rise through the ranks to become an undercover detective. Although Wolf insists that he's a skeptic, he reluctantly admitted that he did feel something supernatural was at work that day. Wolf wasn't the only one who felt that way either. Rumors of demonic possession caused a lot of terrified parents to yank their students out of the academy. This enraged Marina, who saw this all as a plot to wreck his political ambitions. Marina told reporters that he would perform his own investigation to get to the bottom of how the riot began. It turns out this would have been easier if Marina really had installed secret microphones inside the school's bathrooms, but that was just a lie. With dwindling enrollment numbers, both Marina's political coffers and the school's budget suffered greatly. It didn't help that fear of Santeria was growing in the region. A few months after the riot, another news story broke out about a Santeria vigil in the area that turned deadly. Miami police found the bodies of two Cuban refugees lying next to the remains of a ritual altar containing dead chickens, a cane, and other objects used for Santeria. As the scandal surrounding the Miami Aerospace Academy continued to mount, the Civil Air Patrol broke ties with the school. Marina lost another election. Soon after, he lost his million-dollar school building as well due to financial mismanagement. Marina moved what remained of the school to a motel and lawyer's office a few blocks away. By then, the number of students had dwindled to just 300. They were no longer able to divide up the boys and girls. Forty of the students slept in a student dormitory with as many as eight to a room. Marina gave up his expensive condo and moved into an apartment in the same building. Meanwhile, the satanic panic continued to spread throughout Miami. In August 1981, an emergency rescue team was dispatched to a Boynton Beach home where they found a 16-year-old boy thrashing and shrieking as he underwent an exorcism performed by a couple of priests. As more stories broke in the news about alleged supernatural events such as these, other, even darker stories began to appear in the news about child sexual abuse that often got intertwined with stories of satanic worship. Miami became ground zero for many of these accusations. In 1989, a 14-year-old Miami church daycare worker was accused of subjecting children to repeated sexual abuse and satanic rituals. The young man remained in juvenile detention for two years before ultimately being acquitted. At the time, it was Dade County's most expensive criminal case ever. The Miami Aerospace Academy wasn't immune to accusations of sexual abuse either. In 1985, a UPI story reported that four cadets from Marina School were arrested for having sexually assaulted some of the younger boys. There was also another story about a 17-year-old female student who said she became pregnant by another cadet who forced his way into her dormitory at night. Marina vehemently denied these incidents. Meanwhile, the Academy continued falling into disarray. By 1982, there were no longer any aerospace classes being taught at the Aerospace Academy. When a new student asked about this discrepancy, his teacher pointed at the sky and told him that's all the aerospace training he was ever going to get. That same year, Marina spent over $38,000 on another political campaign to run for the Miami legislature. He lost, coming in third by 75 votes. After Marina demanded a recount, a judge threw out the results after finding evidence of ballot tampering. The following year, the school hired a new Latvian instructor who was quickly fired after striking a student with a billy club. It was also revealed that the teacher was a former Nazi volunteer in Hitler's army. There was a student named Manny Ruiz, whose parents yanked him from the school following the riot in 1979. 
but Ruiz begged his parents to allow him to re-enroll in 1984. But the school he returned to was nothing like what he remembered. Ruiz described it as feeling like the entire academy was possessed by demons. He said there was a bad spirit around the place. He claimed that gym teachers forced kids to fight each other for sport. Bullies preyed on the smaller kids constantly, himself included. It seemed like everyone was doing cocaine. This was Miami in the 1980s, after all. Ruiz said he began carrying a Bible with him every day for protection. In May of 1984, a six-year-old boy escaped from the school's dormitory late at night and made a break for the chain-link fence when he was caught by police after the alarms went off. As the boy was carried back inside, he was crying that the monsters were after him. It turns out those monsters were real. In May of 1985, five Academy students were charged with sexual assault against a minor. Police were surprised to learn that one of the teenagers wasn't who he said he was. Although the 14-year-old boy was enrolled at the school under the name Arthur Simpson, his real name was Clarence Carr, and he was an accused murderer. In March of 1984, Carr allegedly snapped and shot his abusive father to death while he slept. A judge sentenced him to 10 months probation. Instead of sending him to a correctional facility, the judge sent him to the Miami Aerospace Academy. An expose in the Miami Herald helped signal the death knell for the school. When it was revealed that the place was completely unregulated, unlicensed, unaccredited, and unsupervised. It turned out that under Florida law, anyone with a few bucks could open up a private school just like it. In April of 1985, Marina was forced to withdraw for another election when he ran for mayor. He was mired by scandal at that point and vowed to clean up the problems at his school. He promised to install closed-circuit cameras in every room, but just a few weeks later is when the 17-year-old girl came forward claiming she'd become pregnant after being sexually assaulted by another student. Another 15-year-old student was sentenced to three years in prison for first-degree murder after giving cocaine to a 19-year-old female student. A pair of city inspectors went to the school and reported that conditions were deplorable. Among other things, they found children washing in bathtubs that were clogged with human feces. Marina launched his third mayoral campaign on July 15, 1987. Just two days later, he claimed he'd been the victim of a baseball bat attack by so-called agents of Fidel Castro. He lost that election by a landslide. Marina finally shut the school's doors for good in August 1988. He blamed a sinking economy for the school's closure. Three months later, he took a job selling insurance. He ran unsuccessfully for mayor once more in 1989. Up till his death in 2009, at age 79, the only political office he ever held was his head of the Miami-Dade Fire Board. Despite the horrific conditions reported throughout the Miami Aerospace Academy, there were some success stories. Several graduates did go on to serve in the military. Others went on to become doctors, lawyers, and even a few who really went on to work in the aerospace industry. As I mentioned earlier, Joseph Wolfe went on to become an undercover detective. Joseph Wolfe isn't his real name, but... It is the one given in one of the primary articles I sourced for this episode. Manny Ruiz went on to become a police reporter and once worked on a team of reporters who won the Pulitzer Prize. Was there something supernatural going on at the school? It seems unlikely. This was a school plagued by demons of a different kind. Most psychiatrists would suggest that the riot was brought on by a mass psychogenic illness. This is a mental condition we've talked about on the show before. Essentially, it's a shared mass hallucination that spreads from person to person in large crowds. 
usually brought on by stress and other negative emotional factors. The Miami Aerospace Academy was full of juvenile offenders, people on drugs, and like the story I shared earlier about Antoinette Bragnon. It also had a number of instructors who encouraged the ideas of magic and the supernatural in its students. In other words, it was a perfect cauldron for all the superstition and fear the students constantly felt to erupt into violence. For several years after the school closed, Miami and the surrounding area continued to be a hotspot for the satanic panic. In 1988, police rescued a stolen lion from a junkyard when it was on the verge of being ritually sacrificed. Two years later, the first ever televised exorcism occurred in Palm Beach. The 16-year-old girl had once been a psychiatric patient at the Miami Children's Hospital, just five miles away from the former site of the Miami Aerospace Academy. Perhaps the Miami New Times said it best when they asked, Is any city more firmly locked in the brimstony grasp of Satan than Miami? The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to read more about the Miami Aerospace Academy, the best source I found was an in-depth article published on Medium.com by Jeff Mache. I'll put a link in the show notes along with my other sources for this episode. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank this week. Thank you so much to Rebecca, Barry, and Kevin for signing up and helping support the show. I couldn't do this without you. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of cool bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Elsewhere, I encourage you to subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. And tell your friends and family about us, too. Currently, we're on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcast. Besides that, you can follow us along on social media. Currently, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and the never-ending funhouse that is Twitter. You can also send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast.com where you can send us episode suggestions or just let us know how we're doing. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.